Uh, we're going to be uh, sharing the story of <clears throat> what happened in Papua New Guinea uh, throughout the evening. Uh, just to give you a little background, yeah, we left in 1979 uh, for Papua New Guinea. Uh, we had none of us, my wife and I, uh, neither of us had been on a short-term missions trip. We didn't have any idea uh, what really was ahead of us. Uh, we went. We got there. <clears throat> First thing that we had to do was learn the language of the country. And if you're going to do anything of of serious significance, you have to learn the language. Okay. So first thing was to learn Melanesian, which is this will talk me. Welcome now. We talk in I suppose you put in group. by by plenty you come this So you got one plamane and he talks every long. This was That's all plenty up here. got plenty pipi stops and silo yao blow you. And that was the first language that we had to learn. Uh, you know, just to buy a loaf of bread, you know, and do business in town and stuff like that. Um, while we were learning that language, we were living in a little town called Moprick, and uh, I was making uh, trips interior. Uh, Papua New Guinea, by the way, is a big island right above Australia. It's got about 860 distinct languages. Don't be thinking that's 860 dialects, five languages, a bunch of dialects. That's distinct languages, and if you factor in the dialectical differences, you can multiply that by three. Uh, making trips interior... And uh, <clears throat> just for the sake of time, uh, finally landed on, uh, took one trip among these group of guys. Uh, we were about ready to decide. And the leader of the region, his name was Dale Palmer. Dale got out this big map of the CPIC. And I'm a city boy. I was raised, born in San Francisco, raised in San Diego. And he got out this big map of the CPIC region. The CPIC region is almost completely swamp. <clears throat> and not my cup of tea. Like I said, I like freeways. I like beaches. And... Uh, <clears throat> And he says, now there's this one group, before you make a decision, there's this one group up here, they're called the Etetis, and here's how you get there. And he charted it out, it would be two days by a boat on a river, and half a day hiking. And uh, I'm breaking out in sweats already, thinking of doing all this. I'm a city boy, 23 years old. And uh, he showed me how to do the trip, and uh, yeah, got a a little outboard motor and a a John boat, uh, traveled up the Seabrook River, slept overnight on the river the first night, and every little set of mosquito eyes was a crocodile to me. It was just terrifying. And I got up the next day, traveled up the Seabrook River a little bit more, turned off onto another river called the May River. Uh, the, the senior missionary in the area, he was probably 29 years old. I was 23 years old. <clears throat> and uh, stayed the night there with him, uh, got some of his guys, continued up the May River uh, the next day, and uh, pulled the boat and motor after we turned off on the, what's called the auto V, turned the, uh, pulled the boat and motor back into the jungle and started hiking. And uh, I was a young, healthy guy. And I had my little backpack on. And uh, you're, for the first uh, couple hours, you're just jumping from root to root to root to root. And when you miss the root, uh, you slip. And the first thing that catches is your crotch or your armpit. So it's a very quick learning curve, okay, hiking in jungle like that. And uh, finally, after two hours, we got into <clears throat> a relative thing called dry ground, okay? Dry ground up there and that part of the Seafic uh, region uh, is basically unheard of. Uh, you have about 300 inches of rain a year, uh, and uh, the humidity is between 100, it's over 100% most every single day. And so it's just swamp everywhere. You'll see it. We'll show you a video here in a few minutes. And... Uh, <clears throat> walked into this uh, Iteti village, and uh, again, I'm making a long story, very short, and uh, <clears throat> through a bunch of interpreters, I asked uh, the Iteti people, I had to talk to Ron, who talked to the Nemo people, who then talked to the Itetis, uh asked them as we're sitting inside this jungle hut, do you really want somebody to live with you? 
And uh, we'd had a lot of discussion, a very awkward discussion, uh, because I couldn't speak. I could barely speak Melanesian. I absolutely not, could not speak Itedi. And I asked, again, uh, Ron, <coughs> who asked his people, who asked the Itedis, do you want somebody to come live with you? And the place pretty much exploded. I couldn't, I couldn't understand a word that they were saying. <clears throat> and I'm literally thinking, my God, what's the point? I'll never be able to talk like that. What's the point of even moving in here? And um, so they, they started their, stopped their excited utterance. They, they talked to the Nemo guys, you know, and the Nemo guys talked to Ron. And then uh, Ron told me what they're saying is, yes, 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 we want you to come. We'll tear down anything you see. We'll build your house anywhere you want it. Yes, come in. And I was hoping for a much more muted response. I wanted to have some wiggle room uh, so I could maybe wait for a call. There was no call needed. These guys were so wide open. Um, made the reverse trip out to where my wife was. Uh, I told her about it, and we prayed. We prayed for quite a few days. Lord, is this the people that we're supposed to go to? We'd both gone through four years of missionary training. Uh, we both had given our lives to take the gospel where it had never been before. Are these the people? Are these the people? Are these the people? And finally, after a few days of praying, the crystal clear, absolute clarion call answer that we got from God was silence. Nothing. Come on, God, throw me a bone. I'm totally open. Give me a Y or an N in the sky. Maybe give, give me malaria and I'll throw up and it'll say Y or N or something like, give me something. We got nothing. And so based on a youth pastor, which I'll tell you about later on, uh, whose basic thing was until God stops you, you go. Uh, we decided we're going for it. And so uh, I made trips up uh, that rivers. <clears throat> and uh, again, I'm not a jungle gym. I'm not uh, wired for that kind of stuff. But uh, we built a house, uh, me and the teddies, uh, for my wife and kids. We cut down these big uh, coconut trees. That's what they look like. Uh, we chopped them into 10-foot ten, ten sections. We took the bark of the coconut tree. That's what we used for the floor of our house. The teddies took the leaves of the coconut tree. That's what we used for the roof of our house. And I finally got the house somewhat livable. I think my wife could have made a better house, but be that as it may, uh, got the house somewhat livable and chopped down a huge chunk of jungle and uh, helicoptered my wife and two little boys back into the jungle. Uh, by that time there, I was 24 years old. I was a very mature man. Uh, she was 22. We had two little kids. Uh, and my wife and I and two little kids are you know, back there in the middle of the jungle. And uh, she did medical work for the Teddy people that night. The first time they had access to outside medicine. Uh, they, uh, they had a 65% mortality rate before that night. And uh, she was able to give them injections for infections and for malaria, things like that. The next morning, though, uh, I had made beds. We'd split some logs, put the uh, mosquito nets up, you know, what she had made. And uh, the next morning, she rolls over and she says, honey, I just want you to know I'm pregnant. Oh, gosh, how did you do that? My gosh, terrible timing. I'm, I'm totally petrified. What do I do with a pregnant woman back here in the middle of the jungle? And so I worked feverishly to build an airship so I could helicopter or so I could fly my wife out on a little Cessna. And I failed. And so when she was eight months pregnant, we hiked out and uh, we had our baby daughter and uh, got all healed up and hiked back in, finished the airstrip off. And then we began learning the language of the Teddy people. Uh, we're going to talk a fair bit about languages tonight because languages are critical to, to completing the Great Commission. And that's what we really want to focus on tonight is not just missionary activity. How do we complete the Great Commission? Because honestly, if you've been in the church very long, you can begin to have the understanding that the Great Commission is kind of like the national debt. We'll never really finish it off. 
We're just going to kick the can down the road, kick the can down the road, have, keep having missions conferences, keep taking up offerings, keep sending people overseas. We'll never complete the Great Commission. It's not true. Tonight, there's roughly 3,100 language groups. I didn't know that number back then, but I had a youth pastor who educated us. Man, we need to get the gospel where it's never been before. And so uh, for your own basic background of understanding, first languages are relatively easy. And the big air quotes on that, I'm not saying it's easy, but in comparison to interior, minority languages, those 3,100 languages that need to be reached, relatively easy. Why is that? You have books, you have headphones, you have instructors, you have a controlled environment. You have a lot of things that are on your side in learning that first language, whatever it is, whether it's Melanesian, Cantonese, Mandarin, Urdu, Amal. uh, There are books. They've been broken down. Those 3,100 languages that need to be reached with the gospel of Jesus Christ, they have not been broken down. And uh, they're going to take a lot more time. And so we got the airstrip done and began uh, learning the language of the Teddy people. Uh, I had to be gone from my wife days, weeks at a time, hiking, hunting, traveling, fishing, eating, sleeping, getting sick, starving on the trail with the Teddy people. So I could eventually learn to speak and think like an adult Teddy man. Uh, Yeah, brutal years. I, I got down to a weight I had not seen since I was in junior high. I was down to 152 pounds. I was 152 pounds in junior high. Now I'm a grown man with three kids. I'm 152 pounds. I'm a walking skeleton. <clears throat> the Teddy thought I was going to die. Uh, but uh, be that as it may, uh, finally got to the point where I could speak and think like an adult Teddy man. Uh, two individuals came in and uh, gave me the check. We'll talk about this later on. Uh, you need to be evaluated. Before sharing the gospel for the first time with an unreached language group is a critical situation. You don't want to get it wrong. And so uh, I had a series of checks uh, that were given to me. They check your understanding of the culture. They check your understanding of the language, your hearing ability in the language, and your speaking ability. Those are four separate checks that need to happen for you to be a legitimate gospel communicator. We're not trying to get it right. We are getting it right. Now it's up to the Spirit of God. After we communicate the gospel of Jesus Christ clearly, it's up to the Spirit of God. I can't make people understand light, turn information into light. That's on the Spirit of God. But it is up to me or any other gospel communicator to make sure they understand the gospel clearly. Finally, in 1985, I was given the go-ahead to begin sharing the gospel of Christ with them. Uh, it took us seven months. We're going to walk through the majority of the evening. It's going to be taken up with, uh, how do you make that message clear? What goes into sharing the gospel for the first time with the people group and seeing a church planted where it's never been planted before? We'll talk about that the majority of the second part of the night. And uh, finally, again, it took us seven months of teaching. And in 1986, I believe it was March 1986, we had the first people that understood the gospel of the Lord Jesus. We'd been living among them for seven years when we finally had believers there. Uh, From that point forward, it would take us another 13 years. And I remember the huge sigh of relief. We have believers. The thing I gave my life to do when I was 17 years old, we've got believers. I was so excited. And uh, I remember the next morning, and and I've never had a baby, but my wife has described to me this this thing called postpartum blues, the excitement of having a baby. And then the realization, oh, my gosh, now I have to raise this baby. (laughs) And that's what I realized. My gosh, these guys are so messed up. They understand the gospel. They don't don't understand anything else. And it would take us another 13 years to see the translation of the scriptures done, 
uh, to see these individualistic, autonomous believers become the church of Jesus Christ that is healthy, that keeps the gospel alive, that does reach out. Uh, was not prepared for that, but uh, and if we could have gotten it done in 18 years, we would have done it. Uh, the jungle is a terrible place to live. It sucks. It's horrible. We love the people. We hated the jungle. I'm not a jungle boy, uh, but it took 20 years, and that's why we stay there. So that's a, a brief overview of what we did there. Just want to back up a little bit <clears throat> and talk about why. Uh, my mom was a Christian. I grew up going to church as a little kid. Uh, worst Sunday of the year was Mission Sunday. They'd have some guy who was 127 years old stand up and talk about why he did this. And all I could think was, dude, why? Uh, did you get beat up a lot as a kid? Couldn't you get a real job? Couldn't you make friends? Why do people leave the U.S. of A. and go to Ooga Booga Land? It made absolutely no sense to me. And uh, anyway, we moved to San Diego. My dad was at the Navy, got transferred down here, didn't have to go to church. And um, my sisters are grown and gone. I'm surfing my brains out, going to Claremont High. Uh, everything's awesome, love and life. And uh, we're on, from Claremont High, you can see the football. Uh, from the football field, you can see the ocean. And if the waves are big, you can actually see lines. You can't see the waves breaking from Claremont High School, but you can see lines. And if the waves are big, you didn't do any drugs on the way to the beach because you wanted your brain working good, okay? If the waves are small, you do a few doobies on the way to the beach. That made small waves seem more exciting. And uh, so it's a small day. There's nothing wrong with this picture at all. I light up, and I hand it to my best friend, Adrian, and uh, Adrian says, uh, I don't do that anymore. I became a Christian. <laughs> Speechless, handed it to the guys in the back seat. We all finished it off. I didn't know what to say because I knew what Christians were supposed to do. I'd gone to Sunday school. I knew John 3.16. I knew that everything we were all doing in the car, we were going to burn and go to hell for. I had nothing to say. We get to the beach, put my wetsuit on, paddle out. He's my best friend. I'm speechless. Next day, he's, he comes to where we always sat down, the lunch court, and uh, he sits down next to me. He starts talking. He's got this kind of glassy look in his face, and, and I realize like, about two sentences into it, oh, my gosh, he's trying to witness to me. Oh, give me cancer now, please. I don't need this from my best friend, and I shut him down hard. I quoted John 3.16. He didn't even know that. You know, he was way out to lunch. Tried it again a couple days. Shut him down hard. I don't want to hear from you. Your best friend knows he's got all the dirt on you, okay? And uh, he knew too much. And so I didn't want to hear from him. Third time, the next week, he comes. He's walking toward me. And I, I literally remember him with his little lunch sack in his hand, throwing up his hands, saying, Brad, I, I get it. I get it. You'll never listen to me. But there's this guy. You got to come hear this guy, this guy, this guy. He starts going off about this guy like it's a new girl in school. And that's weird in and of itself. And uh, he's sitting down next to me talking about this. He won't let me talk. And um, he's got me curious because I'm watching his life change. And uh, he keeps, you know, a few more days talking about this guy, this guy. So, okay, I'm really curious. Adrian's life is changing. I haven't been to a church in years. And so I decided I'm going to go, uh, okay, where, are we, where is this place? And uh, he says, oh, yeah, it's at the corner of Claremont Drive in Galveston. Well, I'm not a moron. I know it's at the corner of Claremont Drive in Galveston. It's this big, funky Baptist church. Okay, you got to be kidding me. No, no, no. He, he's reading my mind. He says, nobody goes on Sunday, because he didn't go on Sunday. Nobody goes on Sunday. you got to go on Wednesday nights. That, that's when the guy talks, okay? And I'm sure he didn't even know the guy's name at this point. It's just always the guy. And, uh, well, I'm really curious now, because a church that nobody goes on Sunday. Anyway, so we show up on Wednesday night, and... Um, Man, the parking lot's full. Uh, there are hundreds of high schools. That night, there are about 750 high school folks. That, and the youth group averaged 500 to 1,000 on Wednesday nights to come listen to this guy. 
And uh, man, I'm nervous. I am nervous. There's people I recognize from the water, from high school, and uh, you go down underneath this sanctuary thing and uh, sit down in the very back against the wall. And uh, praise bands up there, two guys, two girls are doing their thing. And, uh, you know, praise bands have been around forever. Like Adam was in a praise band, I'm sure. And uh, <clears throat> so anyway, they sit down. And I'm, I'm not here to listen to a praise band. You know, I learned that term that night. And, uh, and I'm waiting. I'm just, I'm, I'm not moving my neck at all. I'm just looking around, looking around for the guy. Because this guy's got to be a combination of Thor and Adonis and Zeus all rolled into one. And all I see is this old guy over here about 2 o'clock. And he stands up, and he's a pencil neck. He's not an athlete. He's got glasses on. He's older than death. He's got to be like 40 years old. And, uh, <clears throat> and he walks up to the front, and he opens up his Bible. And I'm, I'm thinking, dude, that, what is going on? And uh, Adrian leans into me and says, that's the guy. That's him. I'm like, what are you going to do? You're not going to get up and walk out. You're embarrassed yourself. And so I'm, okay, I'll, I'll see you out. And I'm, I'm thinking, you better have some great game. I mean, you better be able to bring it, you know, because your look is not working. He's got no game at all. He, uh, he opens up his Bible. <clears throat> no intro, no humor, no cool one-liners, no connecting with the crowd. He opens up his Bible, <clears throat> reads a couple verses, and he starts throwing down. Another passage. Starts throwing down. He, and within five minutes, he's talking about sin and heaven and hell and righteousness and judgment. And what it's going to be like to stand before a holy God when he sentences you to burn forever for your sin. I'm pissed. Nobody talks to me like that. I break guys like you in my school that talk to me like that. Get out of my face, pencil neck. And, uh, man, I, I am not happy. Five minutes into it, man, I'm, I'm, I'll break you. He goes on 10 minutes, 15 minutes. He's just going down this track of heaven and hell and sin. And then about 15, and you know, 50, 60, whatever, you know, 15, about 15 minutes in, he takes this little di- diversion here. And instead of the generic sin, he starts going into the sin of young men. Man, now he's nailing me. <clears throat> and uh, I, 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 and I'm, I'm, I'm done restraining myself. I'm giving him death dagger stares. Dude, I hate you. He couldn't see me. I was just one of a, I was an ant out there in the audience. I knew that, but it felt good. And, uh, and so I'm giving him death dagger stares just to let him know I hate you, dude. And uh, 15, 20, about 25 minutes into it, <clears throat> this, um, I don't know what it was. But this realization came into my head. This guy doesn't care that I hate him. That's kind of cool. I knew there were other guys that hated him for what he was saying. Uh, He's not going to stop because I hate him. And if I was standing face to face with him, I don't think he'd stop either. That's kind of cool. I don't know many people like that. And I made a decision. I'll come back and I'll listen to you. Don't try to get close to me. Don't try to put a hand on my shoulder. Let's go get coffee. I want to be your 40-year-old buddy. I don't need that. Okay. I'll come back and I'll listen to you just as long as uh, you be you. I'll be me. And I did. I came back and I listened to this old guy for about six months, a little over six months, actually. And uh, I learned what the gospel was. And, because how, and most of the times he wasn't sharing the gospel. He was talking to believers. But once or twice a month, he'd share the gospel. And when he shared it, it went, went like this. And how he shared it kept me from becoming a Christian for over six months. And I'm so grateful for that. It went like this. Now, obviously, I'm boiling it down. What Christ did on that cross, there's nothing you can do to pay for your sin. His blood pays for it all. You can't work for it. You can't earn it. You can't merit it. All you can do is fall on your knees and say, thank you, God, and accept it as the gift that it is. But you do need to understand that once you accept that gift, your life is over. You have no future. You have no rights. It's all about him from that moment on. 
So think it through. And I did. I wanted that salvation, but I loved my life. End of my junior year, got elected captain of the high school surf team. Had my hot little girlfriend. Had a killer job at Kentucky Fried Chicken on Garnett Avenue back in 1973. <laughs> Come on, I got it all. I got the world by the tail. I'm going to go pro when I get out. I would have starved to death. It wasn't that good, but I thought it was. And uh, I, I, I loved my life. I didn't want God dinging it up. I love my life. I love my plan. And finally, because of the preaching of God's word and man, his authoritative life that he was living, we, he never flaunted himself. He had the largest youth group in Southern California. And he lived in a trailer with an extension cord plugged into the church. I didn't know that. Never went to college, never went to seminary. He had authority because of the life that he lived. I became a Christian uh, early part, first Wednesday of October in 1973 or 72. I didn't know what it would mean. I didn't stand up and shout and cry and whatever like that. Uh, but I knew I was forgiven. Man, I knew I was forgiven. I was never going to pay for my sin. Christ paid for my sin. Man, what a feeling. I hope we've never gotten over it. We're forgiven. The gratitude. We're forgiven, folks. We don't have to fear eternity. Oh, my gosh. I was stoked. I began to listen to this guy with a different set of ears. I learned his name. Uh, his name was Vaughn. Erhard George von Trachla. Okay. Crazy guy. I, I'll tell you more stories about him. But um, I began to listen and I, I, I began to hear the other things he was saying. And Vaughn was talking about Matthew 28. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. He's talking about Mark 16. Mark 16, 15. You can look it up. Luke 24, 45 through 47. Uh, John 20, 21. Acts 1, 6 through 8. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. He was talking about peoples that had never had a chance to hear. He would stand up on a regular basis and say, San Diego doesn't need another youth pastor. I've got it covered. Get out of here. He'd bring missionaries in. And those missionaries would bring applications for missionary service for a bunch of high school kids. And Vaughn never allowed those missionaries to talk about short-term missions. His whole thing was give your life, give your life, give your life. The applications there. Finally, I'd been a Christian for three whole months. I felt like I was backed into a corner by Vaughn and the word of God. I took an application for missionary service. Three months old. I didn't even know the books of the New Testament. And I remember uh, going home. I can take you to the place up there in Claremont, sitting on the side of my bed, looking at this missionary application. <clears throat> Beads of sweat breaking out my forehead. Uh, actuarial tables. What missionaries die of. How long they last. Dude, I'm 17 years old. I was freaked out. I, I, I put the application on my desk because I bought a, a ticket. You know, if you're serious about, if you're a serious Muslim, you got to go to uh, Mecca. If you're serious about, you know, surfing, you got to go to the North Shore. And I bought a ticket to go to the North Shore and surf waves in the winter of uh, that, my senior year. And <clears throat> I was hoping my mom would throw that application away. And um, anyway, I came back from my time in the North Shore. It's still sitting there. Fill me out, fill me out, fill me out. I wanted to throw it away. I really did. It just made me nervous looking at that thing. But it's kind of like, you know, you get up in the morning and you, uh, you read a really convicting passage in Scripture. What do we do? We take that passage, we tear it out of our Bible, and we throw it away, don't we? No, we don't. Because we know God will strike us dead if we tear out pages from our Bible. That's how I felt about that application. I want to throw you away, but I can't. God's in this thing. There's been this guy, his name was Bob. Bob had been assigned to disciple me. Bob was 23 years old. He was a really old guy. I was still 17. And uh, Bob is like on me like crazy. Brad, have you filled it out? Have you filled it out? I'm like, no, Bob, no, Bob, no, Bob. I don't have time, don't have time. Bob, I don't understand the questions. 
No problem. I'll come over tonight and help you fill it out. Bob came over that night, helped me fill out the application. Thanks a lot, Bob. Man, the walls are just coming in on me. Man, this is not good. <clears throat> hey, have you sent it in? Have you sent it in? Uh, Bob, yeah, finally, I was dodging Bob, literally dodging Bob in the hallways of the church. Bob T-bones me one day. I couldn't get away. Bob, I, I, I don't have the money. I don't have the money. No problem. Bob had a real job. Okay, he went to his car, got the checkbook out, wrote out the big $25 fee for the application. Oh, great. Man, the excuses are just going away like crazy. And uh, finally, uh, Bob's on me and on me and on me. Have you filled it out? Have you sent it? Have you sent it in? Um, So I looked at the application one more time. And there's this question at the end of every serious application. You you guys have all done these. Uh, Anything else we need to know about you? You know, they poke around, poke around. We do this at Radius 2 in our application. Anything else we need to know? And I put down the standard NA. I'm a pretty boring guy. Nothing else really going on. Uh, I scratched that out. Wrote wrote out that evening two and a half pages of my sins, my baggage, my issues. Two warrants in detail. And uh, sent it in. It's called shark repellent. Sent it in with the, <laughs> the application, with the check. Shark repellent. That'll get me out. Yeah, right. Less than four weeks later, ka-ching, you've been accepted. The letter came back. Here's where it starts. Here's when it starts. <sighs> what do I do? My gosh, I don't want to do this. Man, uh, Vaughn has basically put me in a half Nelson, slammed me to the mat, and I've tapped out. That's why I'm doing this thing. He used every guilt card in the book to get you started. And, uh, man, and I'm, people in the church are so excited. Man, one, another one. And by that time, there, there were so many from our church that were heading off into foreign missions. And uh, people that had been in the Christian world longer, dear saints in our church coming up and saying, Brad, that's so cool you've been called to missions. Yeah, that's pretty cool, isn't it? Brad, tell me about your call. Oh, man, I'd, I'd love to. I just don't have time. I had no idea what they were talking about. What is this call thing they're talking Vaughn was always talking about a command. And you read it in Scripture. It's a command. So I went to some of the guys that were in college. And I asked them, okay, what is this call that they're talking about? Oh, well, they explained to me. And I know everybody here knows about the call. The call is like when Jesus or an angel come into your room and they shake the bed. And they say, I want you in Mozambique, sucker. That's the call. That's what I've been waiting for. That's what, that's, you know, I'd love that. Man, some hair on the back of my head experience, you know, ooh, I can't sleep, you know, vision. I had nothing. I had this youth pastor from hell, which is what we called him behind his back, okay? And uh, nobody, nobody, got to understand, nobody really liked Vaughn. We totally respected him. The way he taught God's word and the way he was so obviously not out to be our friend. He was out to tell us the truth. That's why I'm doing this. I've got this youth pastor from hell. Yeah, man, I, just, I haven't got a call. Man, I'm going to a, figuring out that the missionaries need to learn lots of languages. Oh, my gosh, that's terrible. Yeah, I've been growing up in Southern California. Man, I took four years of Spanish, okay? My Spanish, donde esta el baño? Okay, that's it. And that's really handy to have, but it's not comprehensive. You know, so, man, me and languages, that's not looking good. And then lastly... I'm not wired for this. A bunch of us guys, there were 13 of us that would leave the youth group that August to go back east to start missionary training. And uh, we would meet once, twice a month to pray together and just interact and stuff like that. Most of them were guys, but there was this one girl, her name was Rosie. Rosie terrified me. Rosie would always have some story of, it went like this typically. I was praying for the people of China last night. I ended up praying all the way through the night. What the heck? all through the night. I can't pray 15 minutes. Oh, man, I was thinking of the people in Bangladesh, and I just cried for two hours straight. Oh, my word. 
I'm not wired that way. My dad told me when I was a young man, son, you're German. You don't have the full range of emotions. Just get used to it. Just get used to it. And uh, man, my heart's not breaking for the lost. You can show me all the pictures you want. I'm doing this because of this youth pastor who's basically made me tap out. So I decided I'm going to talk to Vaughn. I'm going to talk to Vaughn. I'd never had a conversation with Vaughn. Vaughn is like the wizard in The Wizard of Oz. He stays behind that curtain. I went to some of the guys that were called, hey, how do you get a one-on-one with Vaughn? They just laughed. Nobody has a one-on-one with him. He doesn't do that. So I stalked him for a few weeks, okay? And I realized that to get from his office in the church down to the sanctuary, to the foyer, took about 90 seconds. And so I stood outside his door. And uh, sure enough, he's like a machine. Uh, he comes out Sunday morning. He's heading down to the foyer. And uh, I'm right there. Hey, Vaughn, I'm Brad. I'm one of the guys going off into missions. He doesn't even look at me. He doesn't break stride. He just keeps walking down. And I, I knew I had less than 90 seconds to get this all out to him. Vaughn, uh, here's the deal. Uh, I figured out what the call was. I have not had a call. Not had a call. Uh, I laid it out in greater detail. Vaughn, me and languages. Man, four years here in Southern California. Don't, it's not a good fit. And, at the, and, and the foyer's coming up now. And uh, I said, Vaughn, what do you think? I knew I had to ask him. What do you think, Vaughn? Do you think I ought to be doing this? <sighs> he never told you what you wanted to hear. He, that's when he stopped. He stops, which is kind of terrifying in and of itself. He stops and looks over at me. He gives me this look that only your father can legally give to you. It's that look that says, do you have one living brain cell left in that head of yours? <laughs> And he points to the Bible that was in my hand. He says, based on everything Jesus has said, you get on that train. God is big enough to shut you down. He will shut you down if he wants to shut you down. But until he shuts you down, you get moving. There's a lot of answers you could give to that question, but I don't notice there's one that's more biblical. Based on what Jesus has said, we better have a darn good reason for not doing this. To not report to the leadership of our local church. When we understand what Jesus has said, to not report to the leadership of our local church and say, reporting for duty. You guys make the call. I know too many Christians in their 40s and 50s that go through the rest of their lives with a little bit of guilt. I took myself unilaterally out of this. I made the call. I knew what Jesus said, but I didn't step forward and report to the leadership. of my- That's a church decision. We see that in Acts 13. That's a church decision. I got on the train, went back east for my first year of training, Bible training, second year of training. Uh, me and my partner, my partner, my roommate, he's from Boston. I'm from San Diego. Uh, we're standing there, and uh, my future wife comes through the door. She caught my eye. I said, dude, check it out. He goes right down, starts talking to my future wife. How uncool is that? Within a, within a like 48 hours there, a couple. I'm the casual roommate, which is a great place to be. And uh, doing the message thing, you know, getting to know her casually. Like a month into it, I realized this thing is circling the bowl. It's not going to go all the way. Uh, Two months into it, it's on its death knell, okay? Three months into it, he comes back to the room, and he says, uh, dude, she broke up with me. I didn't jump up and down and shout, but uh, I did the patented snake-in-the-grass move that every guy here knows by the time he's two or three years old. Put my hand on his shoulder. Buddy, She's going to regret that. You're a great guy. Don't even sweat it. There's a lot more fish out there. Don't even worry about it. Hey, you know what? I got to go down and do my laundry because I knew she was down doing her laundry. (laughs) And uh, went down there, asked her out. Uh, A couple days later, we got married. About two weeks after that. uh, Just for the sake of that clock up there. uh, We had a baby. Uh, A couple weeks after that, we had our second baby. And uh, fast forwarding to 1979, we're at the airport in LAX. You guys have all been there probably. And uh, terrified. 
Neither of us had ever been on a short-term missions trip. She had godly parents who raised her as an offering to the Lord Jesus, teaching her you're expendable for your king. Teaching her from the youngest age you're expendable for your king. And I had a youth, youth pastor who didn't play by the rules. And uh, we got on the airplane. I remember sitting down. <laughs> and I, I was, I'm married to Joan of Arc, this woman of faith. And I'm Gumby, okay? And she, we've got our six-month-old son on her lap. Brooks, our spawn of Satan's son, sitting in the middle seat. And I'm on the aisle seat. I can't even look over there. I don't have kids. I'm just on autopilot. If I talk, I'll break into falsetto. I'm terrified. What have I done? What have I done? What have I done? We get about two hours into the flight. Brooks, the full Chucky move. His, his shoulders don't move, but his head spins around. He looks at me with red eyes. Dad, I want to go back to Grandma's house. Yeah, son, why don't you just take that knife that's on the tray, stab it into daddy's belly, and carve out all of my organs, spray them out here on the carpet, and walk up and down on them. You're not going back to grandma's house ever. Now shut up. That's what I wanted to say. You can't do that. You're a parent. You can't do that. So I do what we did. I lied. Son, why don't you go to sleep, and maybe when you wake up, you'll be closer. What are you going to say? There's no good answer. We landed in Papua New Guinea, and uh, I'm so grateful. So grateful for that youth pastor who didn't play by the rules. So grateful for parents who raised my wife to be a sacrifice to the Lord Jesus. Uh, no regrets. A lot of things I regret in my life. Not using 20 years to take the gospel to the attendees. So that's what we did. Overview. And why we did it. Because of those people that poured into us. So what we're going to do now is we're going to take a few minutes. And you know what? Uh, you'll see two other clips tonight that are much better quality. This is... The lowest quality video you'll probably ever see in this church sanctuary, okay? So just lower the bar of expectations. It's actual footage. Uh, by the t when you're watching this, uh, you'll see you're about three minutes from our house, okay? And um, this is after hours of hiking. And you'll get a little visual of, of where we lived and the Teddy people. And we'll take a couple minutes after that for questions. So go ahead, watch, uh, lower the bar, and let's go to the video. The idea of living in the villages was new to the Itetis. The Itetis by nature were nomadic people. As one would guess, it was a shock for us to initially live among the Itetis. We knew nothing of their language, and they knew nothing of ours. As different as they seemed to be, we found that they too didn't enjoy having lice in their hair, spending long amounts of time to pick or squish the lice and nits. Climbing beetle nut trees to pick the nuts themselves is something every boy learns to do. Gathering betel nut and chewing it is like their version of having a cup of mocha. 
it's also the preferred way of cleaning up bad breath. The majority of their time was spent just gathering food, planting gardens, hunting pigs, or poisoning fish. These were great times for our kids too. Raising them among the Itetis was something we've never regretted. As my days were occupied with learning to speak their language, Beth would be doing medical work daily, giving shots, antibiotics, worm treatments, eye ointments. This was one way of loving the Itetis that they could understand long before we could present the message of Christ to them. Nevertheless, death is relentless, especially in a climate like theirs. For the Itetis' death was a supreme frustration, the ultimate evidence their manipulation of the spirit world was not adequate. that they were subject to a power that was out of their control. Finally, in 1985, after four and a half years of studying their language and culture, we were able to begin teaching them of God's love for them, how he showed that love by sending his son, the Christ. With no background, this took seven months of teaching, five days a week. Finally, in March of 1986, the first Teddy man in the history of the world came to understand Jesus had come and died for his sins. Heaven to the piano, then I say to the social 